You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Recode Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Today and tomorrow, we're talking about COP26, the big gathering in Glasgow where thousands of experts and global leaders are deciding how to combat climate change. It's a little bit like in 2015 when nearly 200 countries got together at COP21 in Paris to sketch out a plan. And the goals they agreed on then were ambitious. Cut down on greenhouse gas emissions, don't let the planet heat more than 2 degrees Celsius, and help out smaller countries that have suffered from the actions of larger ones. Ladies and gentlemen, this can be done. We have the knowledge, the tools, and the money. Only 1.7% of global annual consumption would be required to put us on the right low-carbon path for 2030. We lack only the will and the framework to use them wisely, consistently, and at the required global scale. Well... It's been six years, and we haven't seen much progress. Net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. So now we're giving it another shot at COP26. But we have the opportunity, and we have the duty to make this summit the moment when humanity finally began, and I stress began, to defuse that bomb. The window for hitting the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement is closing quickly, and the actions we take now could help us avoid the worst consequences of climate change in the years to come. Vox's Umer Irfan is at COP26, and he's here to tell us how it's been going. Hey, Umer. Hey, Adam. So what's it like in Glasgow right now? It's pretty intense. You know, there's a lot more people here than there were at the last COP that I attended. That was back in 2019 in Madrid. Um, And there's a lot more energy here. I think a lot more people are motivated to actually do something about climate change. There's certainly been a lot of activists here who have been making some noise, but With the United States now back in the Paris Climate Agreement, there seems to be more forward momentum to actually get things done. And we've actually seen that happen at the outset of this meeting with a number of big commitments being laid out by a lot of countries. And this is COP26, but a lot of people might be familiar with this conference thanks to a major deal signed at COP21, the Paris Climate Agreement. Can you tell us about that accord and what's changed in the five years since it was signed? Right. So that was back in 2015. At that meeting, the leaders of the world, basically just about every country in the world, signed on to the Paris Agreement. And it set out a couple key principles that were really difficult to forge, but ultimately agreed to. And that was that climate change is a global problem. 
that everyone has to contribute to the solution, but also that everybody who participates gets to set their own targets. The Paris Agreement also set out a limit of warming of two degrees Celsius with a more ambitious target of staying well below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now at the outset, nobody's commitments put the world in line with meeting either of those goals. But the idea was that over time, they would regroup, get back together to the table and come up with more ambitious goals. And the first main check of that was supposed to be in 2020, now 2021, where countries come to the table with stronger commitments. And that's what we're trying to see here at Glasgow in COP26. And the United States has a complicated history with the Paris Climate Agreement. What's that all about? Right. The United States was one of the conveners of the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, under President Obama, Secretary of State at the time, John Kerry, and and a bunch of other U.S. leaders helped cajole a bunch of other countries to get to the table and actually agree to these principles. But since then, you know, we had a change of administrations in the U.S. You know, President Trump won, and he campaigned on getting the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. But because of the way the process works, the U.S. couldn't immediately pull out. So the U.S. actually left the Paris Climate Agreement right after Trump had lost the election. So for the brief period between November 2020 and January 2021, the U.S. was out of the agreement. Joe Biden, who campaigned for re-entering the agreement, basically put in the paperwork to join it almost as soon as he entered office. And now the U.S. is back at the table. But how has this history affected the way that the U.S. approaches COP26? What role is America playing at this conference? Yeah, the U.S. is the world's second largest greenhouse gas emitter and the largest single economy in the world. So anything the U.S. does has significance. But that particular history of the U.S. pulling out and jumping back in meant that the U.S. had to come back to the table with something a bit more credible and had to make up for lost time. So Joe Biden tried to get the ball rolling on that back in April at the Earth Day summit he held at the White House. And that's where he announced that the U.S. would be amplifying and enhancing its goal for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Basically, that the U.S. would cut emissions in half relative to 2005 levels by 2030. Each country can set higher climate ambitions that will in turn create good paying jobs, advance innovative technologies, and help vulnerable countries adapt to climate impacts. We have to move. We have to move quickly to meet these challenges. That's less than nine years away. So that's a fairly aggressive cut uh, based on our current trajectory. But it was a way to signal to the rest of the world that the U.S. was taking this seriously and was willing to set more ambitious targets for themselves. Now, Keith, part of that is how you're going to put that into action. Now, Biden has executive orders that he's used to try to improve action on climate change, things like using federal purchasing power to buy green energy, to buy electric vehicles. But the bulk of his agenda is tied up in Congress through these pair of bills, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure plan and the Build Back Better plan. And the U.S. delegation was really hoping to get an agreement on both of these so they could come to the table here in Glasgow and show the rest of the world that they actually have committed money and resources behind these targets. But alas, the U.S. did not get those uh, deals cemented. And right now, while Congress is working through them, the U.S. is in a little bit of a weaker negotiating position. So it's a little bit harder to nudge other countries to do more when the U.S. is struggling to mobilize its own resources to solve the problem. And beyond what you just mentioned, what are some of the other key items on the COP26 agenda? Well, one of the big ones is that countries are coping with uh, how they deal with 
loss and damage. Essentially, we know that climate change is a global problem, but some countries are going to suffer worse than others. And the countries that stand to suffer the most contributed least to the problem. And so they argued that they deserve to be compensated for the losses and damages already underway. Things like rising sea levels, more extreme heat waves. They're saying that they feel the losses now and they need a mechanism to be compensated for that. And wealthier countries are, of course, resisting that because it's their money that's on the table and they're pushing back on some of the stronger language. So that's one of the things that has to be hammered out in these negotiations. You know, this back and forth over how much money is at the table, who gets what, what are the rules, how much transparency they need. Um, and that can get really difficult and thorny. And these meetings can drag on for a very long time because of that. And in terms of who's there, do you have any idea how many people showed up and what is the ratio of protesters to attendees? Well, because of COVID, there have been some strict restrictions on people who can come in and out of the building. I don't know the exact number, but every day I've been here, they've reached capacity. And some activists and observers have been complaining that this cop has been fairly exclusive of outside groups, people who are not part of governments or corporations. Basically, they have not had access to the venue or been able to you know, voice their concerns. And so we've seen some activists gathering outside the venue, you know, drum circles and also people doing stunts. And um, a pretty particularly notably, there was a group that, you know, sunk a barge on the river outside the uh, venue with uh, pictures of the world's leaders on them. So there's definitely been, you know, interest from activists here, but it's a bit more muted because of some of the logistical constraints. You mentioned there are some corporations at the conference, and that reminds me, I've heard about some fair at COP26 that's causing a bit of controversy. What's going on there? So basically, like in addition to like the actual negotiations, which happen behind closed doors, there is this whole conference hall that's full of basically these exhibits and booths put out by different countries. And so it's kind of like going to a trade show where you have like every country has a booth where they talk about their clean energy stuff and like all the things they're doing to mitigate climate change, even from the oil producing countries, you know, like a lot of Middle Eastern countries have a very large presence here. Russia has a booth here. The United States does. So does China. So every country has sort of this sort of PR front that they're putting on as well. And then a few companies that work within these countries also have have a significant presence as well. I haven't really had a chance to explore the floor of this uh, convention center so much, but uh, generally they're out there. And of course, it's PR. And for a lot of activists, you know, seeing countries that promote their green activities while still, you know, seeing their emissions go up reeks of hypocrisy that they're being welcomed here, that they get all this floor space to promote themselves without actually leading to meaningful reductions. I think that does frustrate a lot of activists that there's a huge public relations element to this conference, that that a significant amount of space and time is being devoted to it. So you've talked about this goal, this two degrees Celsius goal of 1.5 if we're being ambitious. How did the targets of COP26 build upon those that were already in place from the Paris Climate Agreement? Well, one of the big things is that the 1.5 degrees Celsius target has pretty much become the de facto target. A lot of countries are only talking about 1.5 and not 2. Some countries are still holding out, but basically there is a push towards greater ambition. Now that greater ambition comes with the backdrop of the fact that the world is even further away from its goals than it was back in 2015. Greenhouse gas emissions are still rising. The atmospheric concentrations of CO2 reached a record high this year. So there's a little bit of an incongruence there. But the thinking is that since the 2015 Paris Climate Accord, you know, we've seen advanced in technology. We've seen a huge drop in the price of renewable energy. We've seen advances in energy storage. We've also gotten better at handling our own economies and building an economy around clean energy. And so countries are a little bit 
uh, less afraid of investing in clean tech now that they've seen it perform on the grid at scale. And that's giving them an incentive to push for greater ambition. So about renewable energy, that's a big one, of course, and we hear about it a lot. But what about some more forward thinking technologies? Like what's being said about the next generation of clean tech? Well, one of the things that's, you know, I think counts as technology, but is usually not framed as such, is a lot of these regenerative solutions, things like being able to restore ecosystems, not just to their primeval state, but maybe to an estate where they are more enhanced in how much they take in CO2 out of the air. So sometimes this can be, you know, not just restoring forests, but maybe using agriculture in a strategic way and engineering crops that can pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So you can solve multiple problems at once, you know, feed people more food, also use less resources in farming and also pull more carbon dioxide out of the air and store it in the soil. These are things that are not very well developed, but they're some of the technologies that people are very excited about. But also, you know, the, some of the conventional stuff like renewable energy, the fact that it's getting cheaper makes it that much more hard to argue against in some markets. It's actually cheaper than running existing coal-fired power plants, so they make the argument for themselves without any kind of environmental framing. But some of the really big long-shot picture um, technologies are also being discussed here with varying degrees of skepticism, one of the big ones is air capture, you know, capturing carbon dioxide directly out of the air. Right now, there are a couple companies that are working on that technology. Um, there are some pilot scale devices that are up and running, but it remains really expensive. And, um, and that's why it's been a little bit hard to get that going. On the other hand, though, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that in order to limit warming this century, what we need to do is not just zero out emissions by the middle of the century, but actually start withdrawing more emissions from the air than we put in. So we need to be carbon negative. So by 2050 and past that, we will need some kinds of technology for pulling carbon dioxide out of the air. And direct air capture, these machines that scrub CO2 from the air, is one mechanism for doing that. There are other ways you can do that with agriculture and um, also with ecosystem restoration. But that's one of the big technology fixes that people are talking about. Now, we've talked about the United States a fair amount, obviously a big player in this, but so are China and Russia. What kinds of targets are they setting or what are they agreeing to? Well, China and Russia have maintained a lower presence here. President Barack Obama, who was here earlier this week, you know, specifically called out the leaders of Russia and China for not showing up to this meeting. The escalation, the ratcheting up of ambition that we anticipated in Paris six years ago has not been uniformly realized. I have to confess, it was particularly discouraging to see the leaders of two of the world's largest emitters China and Russia declined to even attend the proceedings. And their national plans so far reflect what appears to be a dangerous lack of urgency, a willingness to maintain the status quo uh, on the part of those governments. And that's a shame. But uh, some of the other analysts I talked to said that while the leaders themselves didn't show up, they did send their high-level negotiators, and they are trying to hammer out a deal on their terms. With China in particular, China is the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter, also the world's largest coal consumer. So anything that they do will move the whole global market on carbon dioxide, but energy in general. And what they've done is they have actually committed to a net zero target by roughly the middle of the century, about 2060. But they've also said that they intend to continue growing their greenhouse gas gas emissions to a point 
and then decline. So they're saying that roughly in the 2020s and sometime in the next few years, they'll still see an increase and then over time begin to decline. Part of that is going to be how they restructure their economy, but part of that is also them switching towards clean energy. Uh, for Russia, it's a little bit more complicated because they're a very oil-dependent country. They count on oil as an export, uh, similar to Saudi Arabia. And so for these countries, it's not just whether they use their own clean energy, it's that they have to sell it in order to keep their economies going. So, Umer, the negotiations in Glasgow wrap up this week, and I know that protesters have complained a lot about how it's conferences like these amount to politicians making promises and saying they'll do things without actually doing them. But what do you think comes next? Will something actually get done thanks to the conversations happening in Glasgow? I think so. I mean, and I think that um, it's going to take it's not going to be in these big sweeping changes to the global economy. I mean, the way these things work, they're always going to be piecemeal and incremental. And I don't think those kinds of measures are ever going to satisfy activists. You know, we're not going to see a wholesale turn away from fossil fuels writ large. You know, we did see commitments to get rid of coal, but that's over the coming years. And that's basically through attrition of basically letting the existing coal fired power fleet in many countries come to a halt on their own. In order to get action, you do need commitments first. You know, first you need people to declare their intentions, and that's the first step, but it is an important step. And then after that, you do have to put things into action. And that is one of the key things that's going to be negotiated here. You know, a lot of countries set targets to 2050, 2060, 2070, but one of the key uh, points of discussion here is what are the targets going to be for 2025? So, you know, less than four years from now. So that that's going to be another issue that they have to sort out is what the stock takes and the checkpoints are going to be. And I think that's where we will really see whether or not countries are serious, because that's where, you know, the rubber will hit the road and we'll see the results right away. Umair, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. COP26 wraps up this week, and tomorrow we'll have another conversation about climate change for you from our friends at Today Explained. In it, there will be an examination of the case for climate reparations. After all, it was rich countries that pumped the vast majority of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, leaving smaller developing countries to pay the price. So how should countries like the United States make up for it? Be sure to check in tomorrow to learn more. And thanks for listening to Rico Daily. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Paul Robert Mouncey. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.